Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. I sure wish we could be together this morning. It seems like anytime we get a little momentum going, uh, the weather breaks that up, but hopefully you're staying safe and warm. We are in a series on marriage entitled Me, We, and He. And this morning, we're going to talk about the S word. That's right. We're going to go there. And I know that this is a sensitive topic for some, but we're going to hit it head on. So I hope you're ready. Of course, the S word that I'm talking about is submission. And submission looks like different things to different people. For the sake of our discussion this morning, we're going to talk about submission, obviously, as it relates to marriage. Some think that submission means the husband is the dictator of the family and whatever he says goes. The wife and the family has to fall in line or else. Others think that maybe submission is that the husband has majority control, that he's the majority shareholder in the family. Others think that submission simply means that he gets to retain uh, control of the remote control. But there are a lot of different definitions that are given for submission, and unfortunately, many of those definitions are unscriptural. They're off base. In our culture today, many cringe when they hear the S word because they believe that uh, Paul, for instance, who talked about the S word quite a bit, was misogynistic, chauvinistic, a dinosaur who couldn't relate to the culture that we live in now. Of course, then that begs the question, who do we follow, right? Uh, Either the Holy Spirit inspired Paul or uh, some scholar or professor. I think I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit inspired Paul. I think that's the best course of action. But the truth of the matter is that Paul was not chauvinistic or misogynistic. The problem is not with Paul. The problem is with our understanding of submission. Yes, it is true that the social status of women in the first century is very different than the social status of women today. By and large, women were treated like cattle in Paul's time, but that's what makes Paul's words so profound. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, it reads, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word." that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I saw a cartoon one time of a preacher who had created a pulpit much like one of those World War II machine gun nests, and he was hiding in it, and he had a little slit there that he was peering out of, and he made mention that he was going to speak on Ephesians 5 and how women should be subject to their husbands, and I think that's how some look at this topic. They're scared to death to approach it because 
in our culture, it's completely out of step to say that, that the wife should submit to her husband. We get submission wrong, though, because we don't have the right view of submission because we don't view it through the lens of the gospel and discipleship. Instead, we often view it from the lens of culture or cultural trends. And as we probably already know, culture seldom gets things right or at least is diametrically opposed to Scripture oftentimes. So many times. Our culture views the topic of submission as if it's a dirty word. Women are equal. Women are just as strong as men. Women should never bow down to, to another man, especially to their own husband. You know, we've seen radical feminism make a resurgence. We have phrases now in our culture like toxic masculinity being tossed around. And I think it goes without saying that we cannot take our cues from culture. So what is Paul's definition of submission? That's really what we got to look at. Better still, how does the Holy Spirit define submission? And the first thing I want you to notice about Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is the radical nature of Paul's teaching. Far from chauvinistic or misogynistic, Paul is actually arguing for mutual surrender. Why is that radical? Because no one in that day and time believed that. No one was teaching that. No one was teaching equal submission or uh, gender-neutral submission. In Paul's day, women were viewed not as equal to men, but as less than men. And so Paul promotes a radical way of doing life and doing marriage. Submit to one another. Just look at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now the word submit in verse 22 is, is not actually in the original Greek text. It's supplied in verse 21 so that verses 21 and 22 literally read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Submission is gender neutral. We often get caught up in the wives being subject to their husband's part, but she's not the only one who's to be in subjection. Submission is gender neutral. While God established leadership within the home and within the church with a man, he never intended for the man to work alone. The husband is not the boss. He's not the dictator. He is the head, according to Paul, and headship involves sacrifice, nourishment. It involves cherishing. Paul exhorts husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ demonstrate his love for the church? Well, not by sending it flowers. Not by saying I love you to the church, but rather by dying for it. Purchasing it, member by member with his own blood. So men, if your idea of submission is that your wife has to do whatever you tell her to do, then you have a definition that is completely unbiblical. And women, if your idea of submission is that you must give up your rights and your privileges because you're an inferior being, well then your definition is also unbiblical. So don't twist the words of Paul and assume that men are the boss and women are the servants. This isn't about who's better than whom or who's stronger than whom or who gets to call all the shots or who has to obey. This isn't about who wears the pants in the family. And it isn't about a woman's rights versus a man's control over her. Submission is personal. Notice Paul says, submit yourself. Paul is speaking to husbands and wives individually and telling them to work on their attitudes. He doesn't say husbands demand that your wives submit. He doesn't say that he doesn't say that because he understands that you cannot force submission. It has to be chosen. A husband's submission to Christ cannot be coerced. 
Surrender means nothing if it's not chosen. Submission isn't demanded. It's given. And submission is also comprehensive. Notice verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Submission is an everything thing. In other words, there is no part of marriage that is private property. There are, there are no separate private bank accounts, no secrets, no hidden passwords. He should have access to everything that you have and vice versa. Oneness cannot exist without this principle. Submission is also mutual. I often hear husbands say things like, well, I wear the pants in the family, but she tells me how to put them on. Or, or I'm the head, but she's the neck that turns the head. Or, or I rule the roost and she rules the rooster. And, and I hear men make those emasculating types of comments. And oftentimes I'll look at his wife and she's typically shaking her head or rolling her eyes, thinking to herself, that, that's not true. Quit saying that. It's rather emasculating and it makes it uncomfortable for the wife because the truth of the matter is when it comes to who runs the show, Paul says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. So who's the boss? It's Christ. It's not the husband, not the wife. It is Christ, Jesus. He is the head of marriage. He rules the roost and the rooster and the hen. So submission is mutual, mutual in that you submit to one another, but also in that you both submit to the Lord first. That's submission really in a nutshell. It's personal, it's comprehensive, it's mutual. But you know, I think sometimes the best way to define something is maybe by doing so in the negative, talking about what it's not. So let's do that for just a few moments. Let's look at what submission is not. And, and first and foremost, we have to understand that this submission is not 100% agreement. Paul's intent was not for the wife to go along with whatever ruling the husband hands down, no questions asked. There are times when the wife may have to take on the role of referee and call a timeout and, and, and lovingly approach her husband and say something like, you know, uh, maybe this isn't the best thing for our family or maybe he's not leading them down a path of righteousness and she has to help him, you know, turn around and realize what he is doing. Maybe he's tempted to sleep in after a hard week on Sunday and maybe she goes in and says, no, honey, you need to, you need to come with us to church. Lead us. Any successful leader should want constructive criticisms. Husbands, if we want to grow, then we should desire for our wife to play referee at times. However, there is a very important distinction to be made between a referee and a boo bird or just a negative fan. You see, wives have to understand that referees do their, their best to make sure the game keeps flowing smoothly. Disgruntled fans, they just want to boo. They just want to be negative. So the two of you are on the same team. Don't ever forget that and don't allow the role of referee to turn into the role of a boo bird. Secondly, Submission does not mean leaving your brain at the altar. Man was incomplete on his own. God recognized that he needed someone to complete him, and so he made woman. All you married men out there can attest to the fact that wives bring a certain skill set to the table that we absolutely need and we cannot live without. What we don't need is mindless surrender. We need thoughtful interaction. We need a wife who injects logic and reason. We need a wife who affirms and challenges. Again, this is a holy alliance. If this is going to work, then we're going to have to work together. While the, the onus ultimately rests on the husband's shoulders as far as leadership within the home, he needs to value her input. 
because two brains are obviously better than one, especially if her brain is a little bigger and functions a little better, right? Submission is not without limits either. Wives do not submit to husbands at all costs. No, we submit to God at all costs, right? In fact, the only basis for surrender to uh, the husband from the wife is their surrender to the Lord. It's because they have submitted to God first that they submit to their husband. Likewise, a husband who truly understands submission is one who has submitted to Christ first and foremost. You know, I've counseled with women whose husbands were not necessarily happy with their wife coming to church and maybe even tried to forbid them from coming or used that against them in an argument or something of that nature. Well, that's where you draw the line. You know, a wife submits to God first. And if by living in submission to her husband puts her in conflict with the commands of God or her devotion to God, well, the devotion to God has to win out. The surrender to God has to come first. We see this in the eldership, you know, within the church. The elders are to submit to God first and foremost. They are shepherds, but they're also sheep. And there's good elders and there's bad elders. There's power-hungry elders. There's elders that, that don't recognize that the office is, is something to be cherished and something that, that depends on their surrender to God first and foremost. And so a good elder understands that while they're a shepherd, they're also a sheep. And therefore, they, they provide direction that is godly. But there are times when church members have to say, look, our elders are not leading us in a proper direction. We need to play referee. We need to tell them, look, you need to set us on the path of righteousness. You need to lead better, perhaps. And if they don't, then it may be that we have to, to leave that situation. But leadership in the home and within the church is predicated upon surrender. And that surrender starts with God. Now, this isn't the kind of stuff that you hear in secular seminars or that you read in secular books or, or blogs, etc. They don't often approach marriage this way. People don't often approach marriage this way. And as a result, we have far too many broken marriages because the secular world doesn't follow the wisdom and instruction of God. And because of that, the brokenness doesn't get fixed. Many have a marriage lying in ruins because they didn't build their marriage according to code or they didn't consult the wise architect when things were falling apart. Far too many are making marriage about I and my when the Bible clearly makes marriage about we and he. And that brings us to the most important piece of scripture, the most important verse in the Bible on marriage. Here it is. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is where we start when it comes to marriage. This is the most important verse on marriage in the Bible. Start with Jesus, start with discipleship, and start with the gospel. You want to get submission right, then you start right here. The reason why submission is a dirty word in our culture, the reason why people cringe when they read Paul's words in Ephesians 5, is because they haven't died to self. When you die to self, you better understand what it means to surrender. Discipleship involves a daily funeral. Dying to self is a decision, not that you make one time, it's a decision you make over and over again, multiple times a day. You die daily. What is true in discipleship transfers over into a marriage relationship. Being last means being first. You see, marriage is a 3D affair. It's three-dimensional. You have God, you have you, and you have your spouse. He, 
her and me, or he, him, me, however it works out. And if you want a successful marriage, then the me can't come first. The me must come last. If you want a successful marriage, then die. Die to self. Something else I hear a lot is, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Or happy wife, happy life. You do understand that while that is often said tongue-in-cheek, that it's completely unbiblical. Now, the wife doesn't get to determine the happiness quotient within the family, nor does the husband. Mama doesn't get to determine how happy everyone is. Happiness in a marriage isn't determined by one's per- one person's mood because this isn't about me and my. This is about he and die. If I'm going to live out God's plan for marriage, then I don't start with the vows. I don't start with the wedding. I start with my marriage to Christ. He shapes me, and in turn, he shapes my marriage. Jesus commanded that his followers seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The problem is there's another kingdom that's much more appealing and therefore this other kingdom is what we often seek first. You know the kingdom that I'm talking about, don't you? It's the kingdom of me. And this kingdom I'm very fond of because I'm the king. It's my kingdom. I rule and reign over this kingdom. What I say goes. What I believe is right. I always win. And many marriages are in trouble because one or both parties are seeking the wrong kingdom. You see, there is a daily choice that every married person has to make, and that is whose kingdom is going to win. It's like not long ago, I, I got a Diet Dr. Pepper at the store and I brought it home. I don't drink soda very often, but when I do, it's a treat. And so I put it in the fridge, waiting for it to get extra cold. I planned on drinking it later with my supper. You know what the best part about a soda is when you get it out of the fridge and you twist that top and it makes that sound. That's carbonated nirvana, right? And so I set my soda in the fridge. I waited till supper time. I went to pull it out and I turned the lid and it didn't make the sound. And then I looked at the bottle and I noticed that some of it was missing. Come to find out my wife had decided to steal a few swigs and I was a little irritated. I had waited the whole day to have my soda with my supper. My wife robbed me of my joy. I was frustrated. But I was frustrated because the kingdom of me was my main concern. You see, mine wasn't an anger problem. It was a kingdom problem. Which kingdom will I let win? Every married person has to answer that question every single day. Maybe multiple times a day. Every day you die many deaths as you seek to place we and he ahead of me. Let me ask you this. If you could define marriage in one word, what would that word be? Maybe faithfulness, love, fidelity, all good words for sure. What about this word? What about the word gospel? You know, I think many times our culture... Even the church zeroes in on what makes for a happy marriage. You've seen the books and heard about the seminars, you know, 10 keys to a happy marriage or how to stay in love for a lifetime. We often give the impression that the goal in life is to to live happy in your marriage, have a happy family, nobody cusses and drinks and carries on. 
that that's the whole goal. But remember what we talked about last week. The Bible is not a book about marriage. It's a book about God. And happiness should never be the goal in marriage because you can be happy for a lifetime and never have a godly marriage. In fact, many people make an idol out of marriage and they place that relationship above a relationship with God. And it's certainly not wrong to value marriage. But again, as we talked about last week, all too often we overvalue marriage. We've got to be careful not to make our spouse or our children or our relationship an idol. And and I would say this, the problem is not just that the divorce rate is high in our culture. The problem is that we haven't even a basic understanding of what marriage is supposed to be about. And marriage is not just about being happy or staying together or having a good time. Marriage is about something bigger. Namely, it's about the gospel. My friends, there's a war going on. You do realize that, don't you? We are fighting a spiritual battle. Satan has his weapons of mass destruction pointed right at you and your family. And we'd better make sure that we're fighting the right enemy. Go back to the scripture that we used last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 29, it reads, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. We said last week the key in all of that is the time has been shortened. Paul had in view the second coming of Christ. He believed it was going to come soon, and therefore time and attention needed to be devoted to that among all else, above all else, I should say. So you don't have time to celebrate too long. You don't have time to pursue earthly wealth and possessions. You don't have time to gripe and complain in your marriage. There's something bigger at play. Jesus is coming back. How will he find your marriage? Has it ever occurred to you that God might be using your marriage to make you a better person? Think about it. Could it be that God is using your marriage to reach other people? The world hasn't the first clue about love. And based on statistics, many in our world don't have the first clue about marriage either. But that's not where it starts. It starts with giving the world a clue about godly sacrifice and mercy. And one great way to do this, one great way to exhibit to the world what it means to sacrifice and have love and and grace and mercy is through our marriage. I want my marriage to tell the story of the gospel. And I hope that's what we all want. It's time for us to think bigger than the kingdom of me or even bigger than the kingdom of we. It's not just about my, it's not just about us, it's not just about living happily ever after, it's about the gospel, it's about discipleship, it's about about the kingdom of he above all else. You may have heard of the artist Rodin, his most famous work probably is The Thinker. You've probably seen this sculpture at one point in your life. The story is told that Rodin was driving down a road and he saw a huge wooden cross on the side of the road that he had to have. And so he purchased it. It was quite cumbersome. He got it home, but he soon realized that it wouldn't fit in his house. And so he knocked down walls, he raised the roof, and he built his house around the cross. How about you? Have you built your house, your home, your marriage around the cross? Understand, that's where it all starts. 
A successful marriage begins at the cross.